You're listening to the Restless Wanderer podcast by Paul Coulter, and this is part seven of a series in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter five, verse one. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall receive mercy. Ble- or sorry, they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We'll end our reading there after verse 12 of Matthew chapter 5. Now I've been pointing out as we've worked through this series that the life of Jesus as described in Matthew's gospel follows a pattern. It follows the the pattern of events in the life of the nation of Israel beginning with God's rescue from uh, Egypt through Joseph. Well Jesus was rescued from Egypt through Joseph So were the people of Israel rescued because of Joseph from Egypt, or in Egypt rather, that was a place of refuge from famine in the time of Joseph in Genesis, and in the time of Joseph, the husband of Mary, the parents of Jesus, uh, it was a, a king, King Herod, who wanted to kill Jesus. But after they come back from Egypt, uh, they settle in Nazareth, Jesus grows up, And then he comes to be baptised by John in the Jordan River and Jesus passes through the water and Israel passed through the water of the Red Sea when they came out of Egypt. Then Jesus was tested, tempted by the devil in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. Well, the people of Israel were tested in the the wilderness for 40 years and uh, they Uh, failed that test, but Jesus did not. He was sinless, the perfect son of God. And then uh, we saw uh, the beginning of Jesus' public ministry in the second half of chapter four, but uh, that was very much a a broad brushstroke calling some, um, uh, the first four of his disciples, Peter and Andrew and James and John, two sets of brothers who had been fishermen he says, will become fishers of men. Uh, And then we read about healings and people coming to Jesus, large crowds. So in Matthew 5, we begin with a large crowd and Jesus begins to teach them and he does it on a mountain. Now that, of course, should resonate with us because what happened to the people of Israel after they were brought out of Egypt, after they began to be tested in the desert, Well, they were brought to the mountain of God, Sinai, and there through Moses, they received the law of God. 
So here is Jesus giving them his law. It's a beautiful parallel of the story of Israel. He's telling his disciples what it will mean mean for them to follow him. And as we get further into the Sermon on the Mount, we'll see that Jesus upholds the Old Testament law. He says in verse 17 of Matthew 5, don't think I've come to abolish the law or prophets. I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Jesus is consciously continuing the story of the Old Testament, fulfilling it, bringing it to completion. Uh, he is going to give his law, but it's not something that has a is counter to or a, a critique of the Old Testament law. It is a continuation and a, and a fulfillment and a restoration of that law. We'll come to say more of that when we get to verse 17 in a future episode. But simply to to start with these beautiful uh, sayings of Jesus in verses 2 to 10, the Beatitudes, as they're uh, commonly known. And that word Beatitude means a a state of supreme blessing or utmost bliss. Um, So uh, really that that saying is saying these are are sayings of the greatest beauty, of the greatest significance. And, And so they are. These are proclamations of blessing. Now, some English translations have translated the word that's translated blessed. They've used the word happy to describe that. That's, I think, an unfortunate translation. The, The English word happy comes from a word hap that means luck. If I said perhaps to you, you, you wouldn't be sure about what I'm saying at all, would you? In fact, the word perhaps tells you that I'm not sure. Perhaps it might be. Uh, perhaps means if luck allows. Sometimes you might have heard the word happenstance as well. Um, and so if I say be happy, I'm really saying to you, I hope that circumstances are good for you, uh, that, that you feel good because things are good. No, I realise you might mean that when you say happy to me. Uh, and I realise that etymology is always a tricky thing because words change meaning. But I think you would accept that happiness very much focuses on our feelings uh, and it focuses on our responses to what is happening around us. But blessedness is something deeper and richer and more full than that. Blessing the word that is translated blessing here means to to be something like being fulfilled, being uh, richly, beautifully supplied with what you need, being provided for, being someone that is to be admired. A blessed person is the kind of person that others look at and say, that's what I want my life to be like. That person uh, is, is, uh, is clearly blessed by God. And that's the other key difference, that happiness is a response to circumstances, but blessedness is an action of God. God has blessed that person. So when we get to these sayings, you could translate them in in one of two ways. You could say, if you want to be blessed, this is what you should be like. But on the flip side, you could say, if you want to find the people who are blessed, If you want to know who in this world is truly blessed, these are the people you you should look to. 
those two things are not contradictory of, at all, of course. And these sayings are both uh, refocusing us on what true blessedness is, but also telling us the nature of God's kingdom and, and how we should live if we want to know God's blessing. There are eight sayings, eight beatitudes. They belong together. That's very clear because the first one says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then the last one in verse 10 says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the first and the last Beatitudes include that promise that the kingdom of heaven belongs to these people. And therefore, in a sense, the all eight of these Beatitudes are to do with the kingdom. If you listen to the last episode, you'll know that we talked about the nature of that kingdom. It is the kingdom of God. It is God's rule. It's when our lives on this earth are lived in uh, subjection to God and under God's principles and, and priorities. It's something that God brings about. We are not automatically in the kingdom, we do not automatically possess the kingdom by birth. Even Jewish people who were descended from Abraham, who received God's promise, did not have the kingdom automatically by virtue of their birth. No, the kingdom belongs to certain people, and the people it belongs to are the poor in spirit and the persecuted. Now, even that might sound startling. I mean, you're really saying if I want to see the people in the world who are most blessed by God, they're the ones who are being persecuted? Really? If I want to see people who are blessed, they are the poor in spirit? Well, Jesus is saying yes. The nature of living for God's kingdom here on this earth will not be about prestige and power and possessions and significance in the eyes of the world. In fact, it will often, perhaps always, at least to some degree, lead to opposition from the world, persecution. That seems to be such a radical thing that Jesus continues in verses 11 and 12 to say something more about it. But let's start with the very beginning of these Beatitudes and then work towards the end. So we have the poor in spirit. They are the ones who possess the kingdom of heaven. Now, you'll notice that the first four Beatitudes are to do with our attitude. They're to do with what's going on in our thinking, in our hearts. And the other four are to do with what happens in the world, with what we do, at least uh, being merciful, verse 7, making peace, verse 9, uh, being persecuted, verse 10. You might say, well, is the pure in heart, verse 8, is that not to do with an attitude? And I suppose it is. Um, but at the same time, it seems that this begins with more of a uh, the attitudes and then leads on to the outworking of that. So poverty of spirit is the beginning. Poor in spirit, not rich in spirit. What would it mean to be rich in spirit? Well, of course, this raises the question, is anybody truly rich in spirit? I think not, according to the gospel. You see, the problem is not that some people are poor in spirit and others aren't. We are all 
poor in spirit. None of us have any spiritual riches to bring to God. None of us have anything at all that God has not given us, physical or spiritual. But when it comes to spiritual riches, no one in the world has those at all. And, and, and so there is a kind of implicit challenge here to ask ourselves, am I poor in spirit? One of the fundamental weaknesses of the human psyche is pride, thinking more of ourselves than we ought and attributing to ourselves things that God ought to receive the glory for. In fact, I think that is closer to the heart of pride rather than um, thinking more of ourselves than we ought. You see, the problem is everything that I have belongs to God as a gift from him. I didn't create it. I don't possess it. It's not for my glory and greatness, but for his. And yet time and time again, I creep into somehow thinking that I'm entitled to something, that these things are, I deserve the praise for them. These good things are, are mine to glory in. But when I realise that all that I have is a gift from God, that I am poor in spirit, the only thing I bring into the equation when it comes to my salvation and my relationship with God is my sin. I bring sinfulness, rebellion, corruption, impurity. And yet God invites me into his kingdom, poor as I am. That's wonderfully good news because if it was for the rich in spirit, no one would have the kingdom of heaven. But as I realise my poverty of spirit, how do I respond? Well, it should cause me to mourn. And I think in Matthew's gospel here particularly, uh, it, it would be wrong to say that these are only spiritual truths. I think, of course, there is a lot to be said about the comfort, the blessing that comes to people who mourn. But actually, I think the, the, the primary implication is that this is mourning for sin. Now, even when I mourn for the loss of, of a loved one who dies, that is a, a, a mourning because of the consequences of sin. And, and those who realise their poverty of spirit and come to God in mourning, grieving because of the impact of their own sin and the impact of the sin of others, not people who look at uh, the suffering that they're experiencing and who feel self-righteous and think that they can stand in judgment on God, not people who, who look at that suffering and think, well, I'm a good person, so why should I suffer? But people who say, you know what, if it wasn't for God's goodness and grace, then I wouldn't deserve anything other than suffering. But yet this mourning is painful. And it's difficult. And when we come to God in mourning, in humility, the wonderful promise that Jesus makes is that they will be comforted. There is comfort in sorrow. There is comfort in mourning. Now, it doesn't say when they will be comforted. And of course, the answer to that in all of these statements is both now and in the time to come. That comfort may come now because the kingdom of God is here now with Jesus' arrival, but the fullness of the kingdom is still to come. That idea of the kingdom being now but not yet in its fullness, now but still future, is very clear in the parables that Jesus tells. There is a sense in which the kingdom is here now, growing, often unseen, 
steadily and quietly in the lives of those who trust in Jesus, but its fullness will come in the return of Jesus and the final judgment. So there is comfort now, the comfort of the presence of God and the love of God and the arms of the people of God. But the great comfort is to come in the future, in the resurrection, to know that those who have died in Christ will be raised again. There is comfort when I grieve because of my sin now, because I can know the forgiveness of God and I can know the power of God to resist sin. But the great fullness of that comfort will come when I stand in glory and I am purified and made like Christ and I can never sin again. But if I am poor in spirit and if I mourn because of it, then I should be meek meekness, humility, acceptance of the will of God. Meekness is not weakness. You've probably heard that said. Jesus was meek, but he was not weak. Moses is described as meek, but he was not weak either. He was strong in God's strength. But meekness means submissiveness, being willing to say, I need God, I need his comfort, I surrender to him. And it is the meek who inherit the earth. And this, of course, must have a future reference, mustn't it? Because for now we pray, as Jesus will teach us later on in this Sermon on the Mount, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For now, God's will is not perfectly done on earth. Earth is not possessed by the meek. It's possessed by the proud, the selfish, the greedy. But the day is coming when the earth will be the possession of those who are meek and humble, who trust in God, who acknowledge that it all belongs to him in the first place. And of course, inasmuch as I own anything on this earth now, that belongs to God too and is an inheritance from him. That idea of inheriting the earth is also an echo of the Old Testament uh, where we have the promise that the meek will inherit the land. So the inheritance of God's people, Israel, was the land of um, that we call Israel today uh, and territories around it. Uh, but the, the, the inheritance that is in store for God's people in Christ is the earth not just that little bit of land, but the whole of the earth. And in the future, that will be so. Again, that's another indicator that Jesus is beginning a new people of God here. An idea that becomes very clear when we come down to verse 11, where he talks about people who are blessed because they're persecuted on his account. So we are poor in spirit. We mourn because of our spiritual poverty, our sin. We are meek in accepting the will of God and we hunger and thirst for righteousness. We long to be right with God and to do what is right and to see what is right being done on earth. Seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, Jesus will say later on. That's what, what we're to hunger for. The person who, who seeks. Now, of course, it's a dangerous thing to seek righteousness, isn't it? Because if the standard of God's justice is going to be applied on earth to everyone and everything, that means it will be applied to me. And that's why it's only the meek in heart. Uh, it's only the merciful and it's only those who, who are poor in spirit, rather, uh, and those who mourn because of it, who can who can dare to seek the righteousness of God. 
we, we cannot stand as righteous before God unless God makes us righteous. But do you, do I long to be righteous? Do I wish that I could be free of sin? Do I long for the day when temptation has no foothold in my life any longer? When I won't keep on messing up, making mistakes and acting in selfish, and greedy and proud ways? Well, I ought to, and the more I realise my poverty of spirit and mourn for it and submit myself to God in meekness, the more I will long for his righteousness and I will be satisfied. Again, in this life, I can see growth towards Christ-likeness. It's a beautiful thing. I wish I saw it more often in my life, but I don't know if you've had that experience where sometimes you find yourself reacting in a way or holding back from reacting in a way and you know that it's only by the grace of God. You see yourself thinking or doing something good or kind or gracious and you know that is not in you of yourself. It is only by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit of God. Well, that is the satisfaction of the righteousness of God now, of knowing as well that we are right with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. That idea, of course, gets developed further in the epistles where we realise we are justified, made right with God through the death of Jesus, declared righteous. But it's a future tense as well. The fullness of that satisfaction will be in the new creation, which uh, first uh, or rather second Peter describes as the home of righteousness. So we recognise our spiritual poverty. We mourn because of it. We, uh, we um, submit ourselves in meekness to God. We hunger and thirst for righteousness. Uh, and then that makes a difference. These attitudes of the heart that cast us to God in dependence on him start to show in merciful. Because I hunger for righteousness, I don't then turn to, turn around and, and pass judgment on others. Uh, and seek, you know, to punish those who have hurt me or done wrong to me. No, I, I seek to show mercy to them because I, as a humble sinner, know that I need the mercy of God. So hungering for righteousness and yet being merciful is the beautiful combination. I long for what is right. I want to see justice, but I'm not out to crush and to destroy those who have done wrong. I want them to know the mercy of God as I have discovered it. And so I show mercy. But again, notice the way it's put. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The Lord's Prayer says something about that again, doesn't it? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. I have no right to expect the mercy of God for my sin if I am not showing others the mercy of God when they sin against me. And that doesn't mean ignoring their sin. It doesn't mean that uh, the relationship can be restored if they will not admit their sin or confess it. But it does mean that I want to forgive. I'm ready to forgive. I'm uh, desiring to forgive. And when the person repents, I gladly and joyfully do so. Uh, and even if they don't repent, that I do good to them, as we'll see later on in the Sermon on the Mount, that we can even bless our enemies. 
Then verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And here again, we see the, the now but not yet. Mercy is received now. Mercy in its fullness will be received when Christ returns. We see God now if we are pure in heart. We see him at work in our lives bringing the transformation that we long for. We see him at work in our world through the good things that we are able to do in his strength. But we will see him ultimately one day when we see the Lord Jesus face to face. You see, there is a, a now and a not yet. And blessed are the peacemakers. I love this statement. You know, because I live in a part of the world where conflict has, has caused so much harm and distrust and uh, hostility between groups of people over centuries in, in this northern part of the island of Ireland. Perhaps you live in a place that is divided by conflict, uh, whether that's open warfare or whether that's simply hostility and suspicion and separation between groups of people. In fact, I suspect many of you must because that's the story right across our world at one level or another, isn't it? Distrust between the sexes or the races or the um, uh, socioeconomic classes. This group or distrust between different ethnic groups or tribes. But it is a most beautiful thing when we see peacemakers, people who go out of their way to bring restoration of relationship, which of course flows from the forgiveness that the mercy gives and the desire to be pure in heart in verse 8, to have no other motivation other than what God desires. That's what purity means. One single-heartedness, integrity, not seeking personal gain or a win, but seeking what is truly right. And peacemakers who are confident to do that and to lay aside their own desire for victory or supremacy or justification of, of, of what they have said or done, but who are simply prepared to say, no, what matters here is God's kingdom. Those will be called sons of God. That's what it looks like to be a child of your heavenly father, because that's what your father is interested in. And as we say that, of course, where do we see all of these qualities above all? We see them in the Lord Jesus, don't we? And persecution for righteousness sake, being persecuted for doing what is right, because the reality is that sometimes even though your heart is pure and you are showing mercy, and you are determined to make peace because you are also determined to seek righteousness. There will be persecution. There will be opposition from the evil one and from people in this world who are not interested in what is right or pure or peaceable, but who are interested in personal gain and power and control. They will be persecuted. And Jesus continues to say, verse 11, that persecution will take three forms. There is reviling the words that people speak against God's people. The actions, persecution that they take and the the uttering all kinds of evil against you falsely. So reviling is to, to uh, criticise you to your face and, and insult you. To persecute is to take actions against you, taking, seizing your possessions, causing you bodily harm or material harm. And then the reviling 
falsely, the, the uttering rather all kinds of evil is spreading rumours, gossip, ma- slander against people. Of course, Christians, many Christians in the world today face those things. Many face physical persecution, threat of death and even death itself. That's been so throughout the history of the church. In my part of the world, I don't think it's true that we face those kind of threats, but there is certainly uh, uttering of evil against Christians, maligning them as people who are phobic of various other groups of people or out to oppress people. And that's simply not true. Christians can be peacemakers, pure in heart, merciful, and yet still be slandered in this way. But Jesus says, verse 12, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's a reminder both that this has always been the way for God's faithful people. And yet, as I've said already, that there is a now but not yet of the kingdom. There is great consolation now, comfort, mercy, satisfaction, inheritance, seeing God at work, being known as the Son of God, the child of God. But the fullness of that is to come when the reward that is being stored up, the inheritance that is Christ's by right, in which those who are followers of Jesus, who trust in him, who have repented of sin and come into the kingdom of God, will share in that inheritance in the time to come. So hold on. Stand firm. Listen, brothers, sisters, Christian people, you are blessed. You are blessed when you feel poor in spirit because the kingdom of heaven is yours. You are blessed when you mourn because God will comfort you. You are blessed when you are meek because God will give you a share in his inheritance of this earth in the new creation. You are blessed when you hunger and thirst for righteousness because you can have it in your life now and in the new creation to come in its fullness. You are blessed when you show mercy because you receive the mercy of God. You are blessed when you are pure in heart because you will see God. You're blessed when you make peace because you will be known as the Son of God. And when people don't get any of it and still persecute you, you are blessed. You're blessed because the kingdom of heaven is yours. And because you're doing it on account of Jesus, in loyalty to him, in his name, as representatives of his kingdom, declaring his lordship. That's going to become harder, I think, in this part of the world, in decades to come. I pray that you may know the blessing of God and that you may rejoice and be glad because there is a heavenly reward in store for you. And so hold on and be faithful as you seek to live as kingdom people.